Good afternoon, everyone. Greetings in Christ's name. <clears throat> I've been really blessed by these meetings, especially the last four talks. And then, not just saying that, I think this, is, this has been a very special couple of days for me. And I thank each one of you who put plenty of time and energy into making this happen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would give us your perspective on this topic. Pray that you would help us to learn more as men you've entrusted rich resources into our hands and pray that you would help us to be faithful. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Understanding the heart cry of our youth. So the last two words, our youth, who are they? Does anyone care to guess how many youth are in the Western Fellowship? A rough number. More than a hundred, I'll give you that, that clue. <clears throat> Pardon? Very close. 212 by my count. That's counting those born between 93 and 2003. So between the ages of 15 and 25, there's 212 youth in our fellowship. And that's, that's quite a crowd, really. That's more than any of, any of our congregations. And each one of these have their own unique aspirations and their own temptations and their own opinions and their struggles. And they probably run the range from the spiritual minded to those who concern us. And that's probably any fellowship or church group could say that, that range is, is there. Who are our youth? Our youth represent your congregation to your community. However they appear, however they conduct themselves in public is in a pretty real way, a representation of your church, of, to your community. Our youth are immensely privileged. For the most part, they come from solid homes. A mom and a dad, they've been raised in a protected spiritual environment, in a private school, without television. They have substantial incomes, most of them. Our youth are also a product of their teaching and their culture whatever that culture may be, whether it's the culture of the school, the church, the home, even the culture around us, whether we like it or not. And they're a product of us as parents, the peer group they associate with, the influences that surround them and the way they respond to those influences. I studied the, the directory a little bit more, and I found, so this is a, a bit of a different age group that I studied here, but the, between the ages of 21 and 41, there are 49 single boys and 60 single girls in that age range of 20, between 21 and 41. I also discovered something else when I was looking at the directory, that there's a young man living in Hummingbird. He's nine months old and his occupation is agriculture and he seems to be living by himself. I'd like to meet him. <laughs> I thought the editors might be interested in, in that. <clears throat> 
anyway, that was a side note. I was interested to realize that there are so many single eligible young people. Just talking a little bit how our culture influences our youth. The, um, I find those numbers interesting, that there's that many older single ones. Now, I don't know how, it would be interesting to study a book from the 80s or 90s and see how that would compare. I'm not, I'm not sure how that, how that would be. But I think probably, um, like it or not, that's a bit of a product of our culture. The same thing is going on in the world. In Canada and the U.S., the average age keeps creeping up for, for marriage. And right now in the U.S., it, the average age is 29 for men, 27 for women. And in Canada, it's 31 for men and 29 for women. So it's interesting to see that trend is, is kind of coming along in the church as well. Now, these are good youth for the most part. I know many of them. Just because they're not married doesn't necessarily mean they don't want to, maybe, or that they have misplaced priorities. A lot of them are active in kingdom work. They're school teachers, VS workers, and active and stable in the home church. I guess I'm not a big marriage pusher. Maybe some of you are more than I am. I was 25 when I got married. My wife was 24. That's just the way the Lord led us. I don't feel like there was wasted years in there, I guess. Um, so, anyway, I'll just throw that out there for what it's worth. I will, come, I will uh, come back to that a little bit later yet, maybe. But I think it is best to let God direct them as long as they're being faithful and fruitful in service. You simply can't push a youth to get married. I had people trying when I was that age. and Maybe some of you can remember... The, the, yourself being that age, and there's some pretty preposterous suggestions sometimes as to what you should do, but you really can't push that. And I think many of these youth, contrary to what they say, actually want to get married. I did. Um, will they admit it? No. But maybe this this came up in a conversation yesterday at a at, at the supper table. I think that partly the reason some of them are, are not getting married is they're, they're afraid to start the process because of the stigma that's involved with breaking up or being rejected. And I think that is a very real factor. And that's something that in my mind should, should change. We, we need to do something about that without overreacting. But that's not really my subject. But anyway, our youth. Our youth are our responsibility. So going back to the category that I had earlier of between 15 and 25, you and I will give account to God for those 212 young souls. And it's a very sobering thought for me to think of standing at the judgment bar with Cataldo's youth. There are none at this point, but they're coming on. And God asking, how have you led them? How have you fed them? The Bible says that they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. Are you? Are you watching for the souls of your youth as one that must give account? How often does that fact grip me? Especially the, the young ones, the impressionable, the, the, the directable youth. So if we want to do our job right and watch for their souls, then a topic like this becomes important. In fact, our youth, I believe, are yearning to be understood. 
We look at this generation of youth sometimes and scratch our heads. The world calls it Generation Z, those born from 95 and later. But really, the answers for the Generation Z are the same as they were for baby boomers and youth. The answers really never change. The problems may change. Turn to Proverbs 7, verse 7. Just a verse to kind of get us started. Solomon here was, must have been in a bit of a thoughtful mood one day. In verse, I'll begin at verse 6. Proverbs 7, verse 6. For at the window of my house, I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding. Have you done any discerning among your youths? This tells me Solomon was sitting there one day studying the youth group, pondering what motivates him or her. Is there one who's struggling? Is there a young man or woman void of discretion? One who seems to be floating along maybe with no obvious struggles, doesn't really seem to be, life, to be taking life seriously. How can I help him or her pre- become a product- productive adult? Jesus told Peter to feed my lambs. In other words, pay attention to the young ones. Nurture them. Make sure they're getting good food, like Ed was talking about, nutritious food. Make sure there's a good, safe environment for the lambs. Paul said, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. And we heard about that. He understood the importance of guiding the youth. So what is the heart cry of our youth? and even those who seem to have no apparent heart cry. I've, I've identified seven, and I believe there's, there's more. But let's begin with Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> Jesus here had an encounter with a youth. Mark 10, verse... 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. I see here a youth who wanted to get to heaven. The cry, so the heart cry here, point number one is that his heart cry was to be reconciled to God. The cry of every human heart really is to fix what got broken in the Garden of Eden. And we're starting here at the basics, but a relationship with our heavenly father. So here was a youth, he may well have been a member in good standing. He knew how to manage money, obviously. He was respected. He kept all the rules, but there was something lacking. What lack I yet, he said in, in Matthew. 
he had a lack in his life, but he wanted something more. He wouldn't have come running the way he did to Jesus if, if there wasn't something missing. And I guess I see this man as, as a 21st century Anabaptist Z-generation youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. The last, I want to focus especially on the last um, things that Jesus told him here. He recognized a roadblock in this young man's life. And in this case, stuff. He had great possessions. <clears throat> I got to looking for the definition of materialism a little bit and looking around at that a little bit. And, and I came across a cartoon, I guess, of materialism defined by a picture of a man standing on a pile of stuff. There was golf clubs, a car, appliances, nice stuff. And I had to think of our youth you know, many of them are standing on a pile of stuff and they're still not happy. They might have a nice pickup, a nice bike or four-wheeler, a snowmobile, expensive guns, a computer, a two to $600 iPhone, several GoPro cameras, a smartwatch, and since we're in Canada, a full hockey outfit. And you know, it's not out of the picture for one of our youth in our churches, to have all of the above. That's not exact, necessarily an exaggerated list. Bought with his own money. But when it comes to spiritual energy showing up at church, it's kind of lukewarm at best, seems like. And like this young ruler, there's a, there's a lack. And Jesus touched the area that was keeping this young man in bondage and said, young man, you can't take up your cross till you get rid of your stuff. And I wonder if it's possible that maybe part of the problem surrounding our youth boils down to old-fashioned materialism. And materialism is a lot bigger than abundance of things and money. There's a, there's a broader definition. And I want you, I don't know how many of you have King, I mean, Thompson Chain Bibles, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, there's an interesting notation beside a verse there. This is, of course, the, uh, the resurrection chapter. And, and in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And you notice the, the uh, notation beside, if you, if you have a Thompson chain, it says the doctrine of materialism condemned. And that seems an odd statement for beside that particular verse. But I think the broader definition there in mind is a, is a shift in focus from spiritual to natural things. That's the broader definition of, of materialism. And these people simply had lost their focus. And many of our young people fit that description by their life and actions implying that they don't believe that Jesus is coming at any minute. That they will give a detailed account at a judgment bar at any minute. That the church of Jesus Christ is the greatest institution on earth and that eternal heaven or eternal hell are at stake in the choices they're making. Some of our youth don't seem to believe that by their life and actions. Is that materialism? Their focus has shifted away from spiritual realities. And Jesus here was on his way to the heart of the problem, which is in the last two phrases. But first he identified the roadblock. Your heart is in your stuff. He tested his commitment first. How much do you love me? Or do you love me enough to get rid of this stuff? And if you can change your loyalty, then come. Take up the cross and follow me.
Now, I'm not saying all our youth need to get rid of all their stuff. I don't know necessarily what that looks like. But Christ here pointed, put his finger very clearly on the problem point. Take up the cross and follow me. And it's the oldest answer and the best answer for troubled youth or youth with troubled parents. Cross-bearing and discipleship. Death on the cross and new life in Christ. You know, often the first place we start with youth is how is your private devotional life going? How is your devotions? And we say, you've got to have devotions. You, you mean it's not going well? Well, you need to start. But you know, private devotions is as dead and dry as saltine crackers if you don't love Jesus first. When your love has kind of shifted, when your love has grown cold, and we can't force them to recommit their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus presented it to this young man, and he thought about it, and he walked away sorrowful. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, and as parents and as church leaders, we need to pray and pray. How much of your prayer time do the youth of your congregation take up, especially the, the, the troubled ones? Samuel told young King Saul he was trying to help. He said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. He saw his prayer life as that serious, that if he neglected to pray for him, he was sinning. I praise God for the people who stuck to the altar for me when I was a youth. I was one of these young men, addicted to wrong music, living a a double life, doing all sorts of things on the sly, completely cold to spirituality. Yes, I was, I became a Christian, and I think I did become a Christian at an early age of 13 or 14, but I was on my way out, and through a series of connections in my late teens with a a holiness-slash-Methodist church, the good shepherd found a lost sheep, and maybe that alarms you that that's the route it took. But I know what happened after that. I remember the, the, stack of, the stack of music that went into the dumpster voluntarily. I remember the joy of singing along with the Marion Avenue boys. I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. I remember reading illegally on the car on the way home from work in the book of Romans. Reading about being grafted in to the vine and loving the word of God for perhaps the first time in a long time. And no one told me to have devotions. Suddenly I was soaking up the Bible. And through a circular route, God brought me to a point where I needed to make a choice of whether I was going to follow the word or follow my heart. And through study and prayer and of my own accord, decided 
that the Mennonite church was the safest environment for me to follow Christ. And that's what has to happen. Um, and I know without a doubt there was faithful parents and church leaders and other concerned people that were praying for me. I don't believe it would have, I don't see how it would have happened otherwise with the friends I had and the peer pressure that was surrounding me. So parents keep praying. Preachers keep praying. The fundamental heart cry of our youth is a being reconciled to God. Number two, parental connection. Parental connection. We've all been designed from birth to give our hearts to our parents, and youth really are no different. It doesn't seem that way to us sometimes. seems like they want nothing to do with us as parents. I'm speaking for, I don't have experience with that, but I'm sure that is coming. I'll just illustrate with the story from my own youth of how youth want parental connection. And I'm hoping, I'm, I hope I'm not using too many of my own personal illustrations here, but it's what I could relate to. I think it was near 2000 when the Canadians won gold in the Olympics with their hockey team in Salt Lake City, Utah. And that was big stuff for my, me and my friends. We loved hockey and, we, and when that, that happened, that was the best thing that could have ever happened. And anyway, it seems childish now. But, so, and I went out and I bought myself a, an Ill, and it was a collector's version of, a, of the Canadian hockey team. All the stats on all the players, all the coaches, everything. And of course we beat the US and that was, that was the best. And, Anyway, and I, I spent a lot of time studying that team. And I remember being in my bedroom once, I think I was 15 or 16, looking at that hockey book, and my dad came into the room. And I knew he didn't like this whole hockey thing. And those of you who know my dad know that he wouldn't appreciate that at all and how he may have come across. And... But what amazed me is he came in and, and looked at that, and he sat down, and we started talking about hockey. And we talked about the NHL and hockey coaches and Pat Quinn and all those men. And, And it was hard for me to realize that, that I wasn't getting scolded for this. And, and he didn't. He eventually walked out of the room. And I, that may not always be appropriate, but I had connected with him in a way that I never had before. So let's be careful in our castigations of their airheadedness sometimes. I've outgrown the, the whole hockey thing and I'm thankful for that. But remember that if your relationship with your youth is destroyed, there will be no transmission of truth. You can't transmit truth where there's no relationship. Youth must have a parental connection. They may be stone-faced, quiet, or re even rebellious, but one thing they want more than anything is to connect with their parents, especially their dad. We can be so wounding sometimes and so cutting to our children in our efforts to get them to grow up. But sometimes it's very counterproductive. I know I'm going to run over time, so just settle in. 
Judges 8. Let's turn to that. No, I'll try to be responsible. Sorry. Judges 8, verse 18 through 21. Here's a a father and his son. Then said he unto Ziba and Zalmanah, What manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor? So this is, I'm sorry, I should have given you the background. This is Gideon after he had had this major victory and he was on his way back. They were just finishing up the, the victory. And these Ziba and Zalmanah were two kings that they had captured. What manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor? And they answered, As thou art, so were they. Each one resembled the children of a king. And he said, They were my brethren, even the sons of my mother. As the Lord liveth, if ye had saved them alive, I would not slay you. And he said unto Jether his firstborn, Up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword. And there's a sermon in that text, somehow. The youth drew not his sword, for he feared because he was yet a youth. Then Ziba and Zalmanah said, Rise thou and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and slew Ziba and Zalmanah and took away the ornaments that were on their camels' necks. But here's a youth that disappointed his father. He didn't, I mean, this is, this is time for battle, and the youth drew not his sword. And Gideon must have been disappointed. But he didn't call him a wimp. He didn't force him to do it. He didn't laugh at him. He just simply did the job and carried on. And sometimes our youth will disappoint us. But before we react, remember that one of their most deeply felt heart cries is a relationship with mom and dad. They actually really do want to please you. Third is a mentor. Someone they can talk to and know it won't go any further than the person they're talking to. I remember wishing that as a youth, I had very real struggles. I wish I could go to someone and just tell them exactly what was going on. And I could have. There were people that would have listened, but I was afraid. Afraid of being vulnerable, afraid of being punished, afraid most of all that what I told someone would go further and it wouldn't be completely confidential. And when a struggling youth comes to us, we should regard their confidence almost as a sacred trust. They're opening up communication with us because they trust us. They've probably regarded and analyzed a long time before they decided that you were trustworthy to talk to. And we can't take that lightly. And we all want, all of us here, wish to be someone that the youth can just come to and talk to, share their struggles and confide. But that's a privilege we earn by proving ourselves trustworthy, that they know that you won't mock them in private or that they will that you will keep the information private. They need an honest mentor, someone to give them the straight goods, someone with a heart cry for them. Youth need a mentor, so let's build relationships. Include them in our hobbies when we can, in our travel. Take them hunting if you hunt, or fishing if you fish, shopping when you shop. It's so healthy for us to include them in any way possible. The young men especially, I believe, are the, often the ones that have baggage built up because it's, they, they're the ones that will bottle it up. It's, they haven't talked to anyone about it. And they likely won't talk to, talk to you if you sit them down across the desk or in the living room and say, okay, let's talk about this. 
but men talk best shoulder to shoulder, driving down the road in a pickup or working together, walking together. Be alert for the things that we can do together with our youth that build camaraderie and trust and that give us opportunities to listen to them and direct them. Many youth are longing for a mentor they feel comfortable with. Fourth is a stable environment. <clears throat> Many of our families have taken in foster children and the emotional lightning strike that happens to a child when they are pulled out of a home, even a bad home, it's just like someone who's been in an earthquake and you can never quite trust solid ground anymore. The rug is completely pulled out from under them and that's, a child then will, will often act out in the strangest of ways because they can't trust their environment. But some children in our own congregation sometimes grow up in unstable homes where maybe the parents are bickering or dad is emotionally withdrawn and outbursts of rage from the parents. And these children learn not to trust their environment. And they grow up to be youth in our congregations, perhaps a bit insecure, pushing against the boundaries, expecting them to give way. And they need stability at church. To know that the standards aren't going to shift with the times, the convictions of the older ones aren't going to change, that the people around them aren't faking their Christianity, that the church will be a solid bastion of security for them. And I really hesitate to talk about some of this. I believe this is an area where conservative churches in the last maybe 15, 20 years have failed youth miserably. And I hesitate to talk about this because it strikes very close to some of us and I hope you can take this in the spirit that, it, that I mean it. Um, I'm in no way targeting anyone, but the rash of church splits that have happened in the last number of years. There have always been church splits, but it seems like for the last, for a while there, it seemed like that was all you heard about was churches dividing and, and, and moving. But a division in the church takes a tremendous toll on the youth group. It just does. And you can take just about any church split that you can think of and I think it's safe to say that there's always at least one casualty in the youth group. All of them suffer, and at least one will be lost. I, I hope I'm not overstating that, but that's what I've observed. And I realize sometimes we have no say in the matter. But Jesus had hard words for those who would offend the little ones. And if we as ministry are going to allow personality clashes, especially in, in amongst our te ministry teams, or my own pride to push my own way and my agenda, and, and for me to be the cause of a rift on the team, then we'd better be ready for the fallout that will follow. One of the deepest heart cries of any young person is to be able to trust the environment. Fifth is action. Moving on perhaps to brighter things. Youth despise inaction. We need to provide service opportunities for our young people, good things, constructive things that they can do, and encourage them to be creative on the lookout for needs in the community that our youth group can meet. The healthiest environment for our youth to be able to build relationships with each other between the boys and girls or even on either side is in service activities that are directed, that are um, endorsed by the church Youth will be active in doing something. It's the way they're wired. And if we aren't proactive in creating outlets, they'll, they'll come up with their own activities. Let's provide service for them. La Jeremiah said in Lamentations, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. 
And he also said later on in the book of Jeremiah about Moab that he hath been at ease from his youth. I'm just comparing those two. Sixth heart cry of youth is God's will. Did you ever notice how many youth talk about that? They, they want to know God's will. How can I find God's will for my life? They've launched their boat from the dock, kind of, but now I've got this large lake in front of me. In which direction should I point my boat? Am I supposed to teach school? Am I supposed to go do VS work or stay at home? And they really want clear teaching on discerning God's will, how to find God's will for my life. And it's, it's good for us as ministry to be, to be teaching that, how to find God's will. I heard a message recently that, that just really clarified it for me. It was by Dwayne Whitmer back in Pennsylvania somewhere. If you are spirit-led, if you're a child of God, you have the spirit of God. If you're sanctified, set apart, committed to going wherever God tells me to go, and my life is his, and if you're submitted to the authorities in my life, parental and church specifically, before you can be a missionary, you need to be a sub-missionary. Then God will show you his will. If those three things are in place, then and go on with confidence. And we need to have a ready listening ear to be able to ad- advise them when they come asking for advice about, about God's will. and that, That's one of their heart cries. The last, seventh, first turn to First Samuel chapter 17. And I'm not sure where to start and stop here. Verse 21, we know the story. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army, and David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have ye seen this man that has come up surely to defy Israel as he come up? And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him <clears throat> excuse me, with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David goes on to, and I'll read. David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And then we know that how his brother scolded him and, and kind of belittled him. In verse 29, David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former manner. And when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him. The last heart cry that I'd like to look at is the cause. Many of our youth, praise God, have a heart cry for the cause. Like David said, is there not a cause? All these warriors around him, sitting on their duffs with their sophisticated war tactics, up-to-date weaponry and fear in their hearts, and they disdain this fresh-faced kid. His home crowd didn't believe in him. The enemy mocked him. And not a smudge of support did he have from the entire group. They all underestimated him. And their mistake was to disdain the battle cry that was rising up in the heart of this young man for the cause. 
And it took a youth to show them up, to kill Goliath and save the day. And I, again, I praise God that many of our youth have a heart cry of seeing the cause of Jesus Christ go forward in the 21st century. They love missions. They want to be out on the front lines. And sometimes they may need to go out and be vulnerable and do what we think is ridiculous and maybe foolhardy, and maybe it is. But maybe, just maybe, the adults have lost the vision and they need the youth to show them up a bit. Are we content to glare at the enemy across the valley instead of confronting him and we're just going to hold the position we've got <clears throat> Ernest Hemingway said that the error of youth is to believe that intelligence is a substitute for experience. And the error of the aged is to believe that experience is a substitute for intelligence. And he gives a lot of truth there. The two don't substitute the other, and we need to remember that as we get older. And we need our youth. We need the intelligence and the energy of our youth. And they need us just as well, but there is nothing more beautiful than a young person with a holy boldness ready to take on a giant, a heart full of simple faith in a God who is able to deliver me because he's seen it. David talked about youth like this, happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Our church needs those kinds of youth. Another prayer of David was that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth and that our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace. God bless you as you relate to the youth in your congregations.